These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Greetings. Good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Coffee with Jeff, the podcast in which I find a subject I would like to know more about and force that knowledge onto you, the podcast subscriber. This is episode 231. There once was a man who, in the early 19th century, spent the last 19 years of his life living in a cave like a hermit, only contacting other humans when it was necessary. What could drive a person to something like that? The man had given up on the world due to a personal tragedy. This is a strange tale, almost too weird to be true. An unmarried woman convicted of the murder of her own children and the brother who fought to prove her innocence. This is the story of the Pennsylvania Hermit. those days, right? You know those days when the world seems cruel and insane? When everyone you encounter as you try to get through the day are so frustrating in their unwillingness to be civil that you dream of leaving, you know, hiding, somewhere away from the world, all alone, maybe out in the woods, in a cabin, or on a deserted desert island, or even in a cave away from all the problems of the modern world. It seems so tempting. But could we really do that? Live alone for a long time, let's say 19 years? There are caves in Pennsylvania today that are known as the Indian Echo Caverns. These limestone cavities have been carved for millions of years by nature, and they're exactly what you imagine caves to be. They are dark with pools of water, stalactites and stalagmites growing every day, and, and they stay a constant, cool 52 degrees. It wouldn't be the best place to call home, yet one man did, a man who had enough of modern life back in the early 19th century. Today's story is both folklore and history. There are things that are known to be fact and more that have probably been embellished over the years by generations of storytellers. You see, this is a story about a man named William Wilson, known as the Pennsylvania Hermit. He was a real person, and so was his sister, Elizabeth, who is also a huge part of this story. Even the names of these two unfortunate people seem to vary. Historians are fairly certain that their names are William and Elizabeth, but in many accounts... They are known as Amos and Harriet, and this discrepancy has never been fully explained. William Amos Wilson was born sometime in 1764 or 1774 to two respectable folks, John and Elizabeth, in what is now present-day Lebanon County, Pennsylvania. They were honest but not wealthy, loving parents who believed deeply in the Bible. Two years after his birth, he was blessed with a sister named Elizabeth. The two were very mild, well-mannered kids, and William was very fond of his little sister. The only description I could find of Elizabeth was from a pamphlet called The Pennsylvania Hermit, a narrative of the extraordinary life of Amos Wilson. It says, 
She was early educated with the utmost tenderness and every possible care was taken to impress on her mind sediments of virtue and religion. She was of a sprightly and affable disposition, polite in manners and engaging in conversation. In a word, she, in early age, exceeded most of her sex in many of those accomplishments which are calculated to grace and dignify the female mind. In 1785, while William was away working in Lancaster as an apprentice stone carver, Elizabeth was arrested for the murder of her two young children that she had birthed out of wedlock. She may have been working at a place called the Indian Queen Tavern in Philadelphia or been a servant in the home of a wealthy family when all the trouble started. The sad story of what happened to her that I will now tell comes from a March 15, 1786 newspaper article. The newspaper was the Pennsylvania Packet, and the article was called A Faithful Narrative of Elizabeth Wilson. It begins with an explanation of how a man with a dog on a road leading from Brandywine to Turk's Head found two dead infants and how Elizabeth was arrested for their murder. On December 6, 1785, at 10 p.m., she gave a confession. I, Elizabeth Wilson, daughter of John and Elizabeth Wilson, was born in East Marlborough Township, Chester County, of honest, sober parents. From 16 to 21 years of age, I had a religious concern, but through the subtlety of Satan and corruption of nature was led away to the foul, foul-destroying sin of fornication, which I believe to be my predominant evil. I had three children in an unlawful way, before I fell into the wretched company of Joseph de Jong. So Elizabeth found herself pregnant and for a while continued to work until her condition became too obvious. You can only imagine the way she was treated as the gossip spread. After all, this was back in the day when pregnancy or even sex without marriage was thought to be evil. A pregnancy would destroy a woman's reputation, and her children would always be thought of as bastards. She had no choice but to leave, so she made her way back to her parents' house, and it was there that she gave birth to twins. Now, in Elizabeth's confession, she goes on to say that she had an unlawful affair in the year of 1784 with a man who claimed to be single. Elizabeth explained her pregnancy in her confession. She said she had an unlawful affair in the year of 1784 with a man who claimed to be single. She fell for his constant talk of marriage. And now she was the mother of two babies. When she told the man that she had two children by him, he responded by saying, The devil you have! Soon, however, he offered to take some responsibility for the children and provide money. He asked her to meet him in the woods with the children to talk about the situation. Now, the story of what happened, according to Elizabeth, is dark and sad. She was holding the two infant children when he rode up. He got off his horse and said they should take a walk in the woods. At some point, he stopped and asked to see one of the babies. He wanted to see if it looked like him. He took the child and laid it down by a rotting log. Then he took the other one and laid it down as well. Then he told her, I have no money for you or your bastards neither. He told her to take their lives, which she refused. Elizabeth begged to let them live. The man put a gun to her head and told her not to make a sound. Then he stamped on each baby's chest with his boot. 
There was a quick, faint scream, and then silence. He made her take a vow at gunpoint to never reveal what he had done. He had her strip off the clothes of each child, and then he used his feet to cover them with leaves and finished up by throwing brush over the top. Once it was over, he took Elizabeth back to Philadelphia. It had been a week since anyone had seen her when she was found disheveled and incoherent, and her children were nowhere to be seen. It was only a short time later that the bodies of the two infants were discovered, and Elizabeth was charged with their murder. The trial lasted 11 hours, and due to the shock of the ordeal, she was in a severe state of trauma. She was unable to speak, to defend herself in court. The jury found her guilty and sentenced her to death. There were many distinguished people in the area that requested a pardon for the unfortunate female, but without success. In her confession, she finished it by writing, My sins are more in number than the hairs on my head, but my righteous judge doth know my innocence in respect of that cruel murder. I know I deserve not only death, but hell. Yet, nevertheless, I hope to obtain mercy through the blood and righteousness of the adorable Redeemer, to whose boundless mercy I command my poor naked soul, venturing into that unknown world, only depending, I trust, on the all-sufficient merits of the precious God-man that died on the tree. Lord Jesus, accept thy sinning creature and receive my spirit. So prayeth the dying Elizabeth Wilson. As soon as William heard of his sister's trouble, he left his job and headed back. Elizabeth was still in a state of shock when he arrived at her jail cell on December 3, 1785. But after seeing him, she snapped out of it, and after some insistence by William, she began to relate her tale. William arranged for a group of respected officials to listen to her. This included the judge who had sentenced her to hang. She told them of being seduced on false promises, meeting in the woods, the murder of the babies, and her being sworn to silence. The hanging was postponed till January 3, 1786, in order to allow more time to consider the case. Meanwhile, William went looking for the man who committed these awful crimes, and he found him on a farm in New Jersey. Of course, the man denied everything, including knowing Elizabeth, but William began to seek out witnesses who could link the man to the city of Philadelphia and with a sister. And he did just that, but around Christmas, he became seriously ill and took some time recuperating at a friend's house. Unfortunately, he lost track of time, and he left the house on January 2nd, believing it to be January 1st. When he arrived at the jail, he was horrified to learn that Elizabeth's execution was scheduled for the following day. He quickly wrote to the home of the one and only Benjamin Franklin, who was then the president of the council. Franklin sent William to the vice president, Charlie Biddle, who he thought was more qualified to make a judgment. Biddle wrote a note saying, Do not execute Wilson until you hear further from council. Now, it was only a 15-mile ride back to Chester, but by now, time was running out, and rain made the trip very dangerous. All was going fine till he reached the Skokel River, in which a ferry was needed to cross. At the time, the ferry was not in operation, and he spent several hours and a lot of pleading to no avail trying to get the ferryman to take him across. 
Finally, he had no choice but to take his horse into the icy water. About 50 feet from shore, the horse was struck by a chunk of ice or piece of driftwood, and he was forced to swim the rest of the way. The current carried him over two miles downstream. Luckily, he was able to find another horse and continued his journey. As William made his way, preparations were already being made for Elizabeth's execution. It was to take place at noon. She had already been placed in a cart with a rope around her neck. By this time, many had come to believe that Elizabeth was innocent and suspected that she might be pardoned. Flagmen were stationed at intervals along the Queen's Highway to look for William to arrive with the news. But by 12 p.m., there was no sign of William, and the sheriff gave the order for the cart to be pulled away. As she swung by the noose, Elizabeth did not die right away, yet offered little struggle. As she slowly died, the crowd saw the white flag waving along the road from Philadelphia. William was yelling, A pardon! A pardon! As he arrived, his horse reared, throwing him to the muddy ground beneath his sister. The rope was quickly cut and the sheriff frantically tried to revive Elizabeth, but it was no use. She was gone. Did William really arrive just moments too late to save his sister? Well, this might have been one of those bits of the story that have been exaggerated over the years. Some accounts state that he arrived 23 minutes too late. There's also a legend that tells of how William rose from the mud from beneath the gallows tree, his hair turning prematurely white, his face becoming marked with lines of old age, and his speech reduced to gibberish. Again, this part might have been from the mind of a clever writer taking poetic license. But honestly, no one can really say. Nonetheless, Elizabeth Wilson was dead and her brother was in a state of depression. Sometime later, a letter was presented to him from the reverend who had spent time with Elizabeth in prison. My dear brother, as the awful moment has nearly arrived in which the dreadful sentence of the law is to be executed upon me, I am confident that we shall meet no more in this world. Your failure to return yesterday at the hour you appointed satisfies me that you have again been unsuccessful in your application for a pardon and that you wish to be as far distant as possible from the distressing scene which a numerous throng of unpitying spectators are already collecting to witness. My dear brother, I am happy to inform you that I am prepared to meet my fate and shall die penitent and in peace with the world. I trust that I have made my peace with my God, in whose presence I must shortly appear. My dear brother, the most that I now suffer is from the consciousness of the disgrace and misery that I have brought on you and my dear afflicted parents. Oh, may you endeavor all in your power to comfort them and to satisfy them that it is the will of the Almighty and that their heavy afflictions in the decline of life may prove for their spiritual good. My dear brother, my last request is that you cherish religion, and that you hereafter try in every way to promote it among your relatives and friends. It is this that will enable me to meet my fate with fortitude and resignation. I never thought in the former part of my life that it was possible for me to be so weaned from earth and my dear relations, and that I could have been so content to go down to the chambers of the grave." 
considerations of eternity, my dear brother, will restrain your fondness for the vain amusements of this life. It will satisfy you of the importance of adoring religion by a holy, exemplary, and blameless walk and conversation. It is in eternity, my dear brother, that we must expect again to meet. And oh, it is and has been my constant prayer in prison that we may all meet there in happiness. Until then, I must bid you an affectionate farewell. Losing a sister was too much for William. For several months, he lived in a state of delirium. After some time, he attempted to return to work as a stone carver, but soon gave it up. He was bitter with no interest in the outside world and began looking for some place to be by himself. The wound caused by his sister's death would never heal, he declared, and he said that he would, for the remainder of his days, quit human society altogether. He meandered around looking for a place where he could live in solitude, only interacting with others when it was necessary. He began to roam southeastern Pennsylvania. He became known as the Hermit of Welsh Mountain at one point. The Kanawago Mountains might have been his home for a while. Finally, he found the caves hidden inside the forest 12 miles from Hummelstown, Pennsylvania. Inside the caverns, he created a home with a table, a stool, a few utensils, and a bed of straw. Among his few possessions was a Bible from which he studied daily. You know, I don't know how I would react if something this horrible had happened to one of my loved ones, whether it was a sibling, spouse, or child. For those who have gone through such a thing, while they never truly get over it and it changes their life forever, eventually they return to life in one way or another. Two people come to mind, Roy Orbison and Kelsey Grammer, who both went through horrible personal tragedies yet somehow were able to go on. But for William Wilson, he never returned. For the next 19 years, he lived in the cave. Unfortunately, there's not much information about his life in the cave. The only thing I have to go on is Wikipedia. Now, I usually use Wiki when I start a story, but do my best to follow their links to find the sources that they used. I don't take Wikipedia as fact, I try to go deeper than that. But in this case, however, I must because other links don't seem to work, and after some exhausting research, I can't find anything else. So the following is directly from the internet's free encyclopedia. There are many caves in the area, but the Hermit's Cave is particularly large and accessible. The natural entrance is approximately 20 feet wide and was well known to local residents from the earliest times. The room that became William's primary living quarters was over 98 feet inside the cave and around a corner. Although natural daylight often reaches the area, particularly late in the day, it is not directly visible from the outside. The caves provide shelter and maintain a constant 52 degrees Fahrenheit temperature. It was, however, subject to flooding. There is a natural ledge, reputed to have been William's bed, besides which stands a stalagmite, which bears marks attributed to the rope ladder used to reach the ledge. There was a large recess near floor level, which, according to legend, was used by Wilson and others as a natural fireplace. 
However, it vents back into the room rather than to the outside, and any large fire would quickly fill the room with smoke, making it unlikely that it would have seen much repeat usage. He kept his clothes and his body clean, but would not shave, and in later years was noted for having a long, flowing beard. Despite his desire to separate himself from society, William's hermitage was not particularly isolated. It sat half a mile from a long-established town and was well known to the locals long before he arrived. There is no evidence that local residents were ever abusive to William. It became a challenge to visit the cave and catch a glimpse of the famous occupant. However, William was so familiar with the cave's topography that he was generally able to avoid curiosity seekers by retreating to hidden areas known only to him. His only personal acquaintance was a farmer who lived across the Swatura Creek in present-day Lower Swatura Township. William made grindstones which he traded with the farmer in exchange for supplies. Now I found an article dated October 24, 1821 from the National Gazette of Philadelphia. The bulk of the article tells the basic story that I've told today about how he became a hermit after his sister's death and all that, but the final sentence reads, He retired to the hills of Dolphin County, employing himself in making grindstones, was very exact in his accounts, but appeared frequently to be estranged, and one morning was found dead by a few of his neighbors who had left him the evening previous in good health. William Wilson, the Pennsylvania hermit, had died. Now the legend goes that while he was in his cave, William wrote a manuscript. He refused to allow anyone to read it, let alone publish it, as he did not want society to benefit from his work. He did ask for one of them to be published after his death. It was published as The Pennsylvania Hermit, a narrative of the extraordinary life of Amos Wilson. The first known publication was 1837, 17 years after William's death. It was published by an alleged friend and is often assumed to be an authoritative account of William's life, but since there are many factual errors in the story, many doubt its authenticity. Or it could be by the time of the writing, his memory had started to fade. Who knows? When it was published in 1929, it featured three distinct parts. The first is the story of Elizabeth Wilson and her death, the second is William's Manifesto, and the third, a new edition, titled A Legend of Swatura. William's Manifesto begins like this. The sweets of solitude or instructions to mankind, how they may be happy in a miserable world. I've often thought, and so think still, mankind may be happy if they will. In this miserable world, so termed by a great portion of mankind, happiness appears to be their general pursuit, yet how few are there who have approached the goal of their constant pursuit and wishes? The only man who can be considered happy is he who can reconcile himself to his circumstances, be what they may, who can wean himself from the fashionable follies of the world and content himself to live within the limits of his income. But how few are there who have the fortitude and resolution to pursue such a plan of conduct? The lust of power, the blandishments of wealth, the phantom of honor are so many of the stumbling blocks to their facility. I think you get the general idea, and it goes on and on like that. Did William really write this? Your guess is as good as mine. 
a little bit before I go. First, thanks to Nancy Fry for not only suggesting this story, but also for providing the voice of Elizabeth Wilson. Thanks, Nancy. I know that was quite a bit to read. You know, Nancy sent the story quite a while ago, and about two months past, I started the story. I thought the idea of a man living in a cave for years was interesting. But then I started to look into it, and I saw that it involved a murder of two infant twins, and I sort of put it aside for a while. At the time, I just wasn't in the mood for doing such a downer story, but now seemed like a good time. I don't know why. The thing is, there's so much wrong with Elizabeth's situation beyond the baby's death. The whole idea of sex being a sin and and somehow a person is less of a person because of a pregnancy out of wedlock. And of course, a child is somehow less than the others because the mother wasn't married. It's all so weird. And believe me, those ideas still exist now in the 21st century. Anyway, that's a rant for another day. How about the ending credits? been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. I thank you so much for listening. If you want to say hi to me, or tell me all the things I got wrong in today's story, or just add a bit of information that I'm unaware of, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I would love you to join. You're encouraged to provide story ideas at any of these locations. And all the links to the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link to that site at the Coffee with Jeff website. I want to thank Nancy Fry for her help on today's show. To my wife of 37 years for being my wife of 37 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, remain healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Met a girl from Beantown Jeff was always hanging around She drank tea, but that was okay she was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, 
on coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. On coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Yeah.